Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest coming on with us, and that special guest is Dr. Harry Lee Poe. He is the Chuck Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University, a Christian school up in Tennessee, or down in Tennessee if you don't happen to be in the South, and he is an expert in C.S. Lewis. And when I say expert, I mean he's writing a three-book biography series on the life of C.S. Lewis. Two of those books are already ready and available, so we guarantee you're going to hear some information and stories about C.S. Lewis that you have not heard yet. Dr. Poe, thank you so much for joining us out of your busy schedule of teaching there at Union University. Thank you. It's good to be with you today. Well, I am excited because I have in my hand, my hot little hand, my own copy of The Making of C.S. Lewis, From Atheist to Apologist. And of course, this is uh, the period from at the end of World War II, World War I, 1918, through the end of World War II, 1945. And it's your second volume of a planned trilogy, uh, Biography of C.S. Lewis, I mean, this is a quite an exciting writing adventure, research and writing, and I think that the world is the beneficiary. I'm just reading Joel Heck's a comment, uh, which refers to the increasing popularity of C.S. Lewis, and it says, the time has come for a more complete biography. The second volume of Harry Lee Poe's three-volume biography covers all the major events and many previously ignored minor events so that we learn far more about Lewis's generosity, friendship, writings, life of service, and uproarious sense of humor. Wow. I've just got to say a mega wow uh, that you have been able to hand off, share with the world your excited learning about this amazing one-of-a-kind C.S. Lewis. So thank you for your efforts in writing this uh, second volume. I'm enjoying it. I'm just, just eating it up. I'm, I'm salivating to get back into it later today. Well, I'm so glad. I'm I'm uh, glad you appreciate it. Well, you've been studying uh, C.S. Lewis for quite a few years. You uh, occupy the chair with the Charles Colson Chair of Apologetics and and Theology. Charles Colson Chair of Faith and Culture. Faith and Culture, sorry. Um, And so uh, I appreciate uh, the the chance to uh, meet you. Of course, uh, we had you share a little bit of your adventures and finding out something rather amazing and shocking about C.S. Lewis that came to light. Uh, that was his connection with ministry to Icelanders. We'll get to that a little bit later. But um, you have written now two volumes, and I'm enjoying To the Hilt, volume two. What uh, prompted you to set out on this adventure, uh, first of all, studying Lewis and maybe like engaging in this uh, never-before-achieved uh, level of detail and excitement of Lewis's life? I didn't set out to study Lewis, um, really. I, like many other people, I stumbled across him and found that he had something to say about so many things I was interested in. Uh, but also he had an approach that was so insightful that helped with thinking about issues that weren't even issues during his lifetime. 
Mm. Uh, he anticipated so much. Mm. And so um, I just wound up getting deeper and deeper. Um, and I, I do work in um, apologetic science and religion, evangelism, um, the intersection of all of those areas and how the gospel uh, intersects culture. And uh, so in 1998, the C.S. Lewis Foundation invited me to give a, a seminar on apologetics in a postmodern age hmm. uh, at their 1998 um, C.S. Lewis Summer Institute in Oxford and Cambridge. And uh, Chuck Colson sat in on those seminars. He was one of the plenary speakers, and we got to know each other, and uh, that led to uh, his endowment of the Colson chair, but it also led to my involvement with the C.S. Lewis Foundation for uh, a number of years and um, just just got deeper and deeper involved in Lewis that way. I had not planned to write a three-volume biography of Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> I had not planned to write a, a biography at all. Um, I was simply um, musing one day that Lewis said he loved to eat, loved food, and I couldn't think of anything he said he actually liked to eat um, other than, than tea. <laughs> Are you enjoying your tea today? I'm enjoying my tea with you today. I hope all your, your viewers are. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just go into his letters and diaries to see what he said about food. And it wasn't until he was, of course, he wrote um, a different age. Uh, he wrote letters to his father and brother uh, from, from childhood. And uh, not until he was 16 did he finally mention a particular food that he liked. He talked a lot about had a wonderful meal. He just didn't say what it was. But at 16, his first morning at um, the home of W.T. Kirkpatrick, Oh, yeah. in Great Bookham, Surrey, mm -hmm. where he had gone to study and to uh, prepare for the Oxford exams, entrance exams. Um, for breakfast that morning, Mrs. Kirkpatrick made, quote, good old Irish soda bread. And so that was the first thing that I knew that Lewis liked. But by that point, I realized so many of the things that Lewis liked and disliked for the rest of his life uh, were really formed during his teenage years. Hmm. Such thing as the love of taking long walks that had already been well established by the time he was 16 years old. Uh, an abhorrence of mathematics hmm. that had already been started uh, by the time he was 16. In fact, um, his first um, uh, school um, he called it a concentration camp. The headmaster who used to beat the, the boys mercilessly with a, with a cane was their mathematics professor. And if they got, if they got the answer wrong, he would beat them. Hmm. If they got the answer right, he would beat them. What? And so Lewis learned to hate mathematics, um, even though he had a, a, an amazing uh, mind and uh, logic and um, his mother had had majored in mathematics at Queens College in um, uh, uh, the 1880s, I suppose it was. Mm -hmm. So um, you would have thought 
he would have loved math, but um, his um, headmaster taught him to hate it. But anyway, we find those sorts of things. And so by that point, I decided there's an untold story here because most biographies uh, rush through the, the school years to get to the important stuff. And what I realized was the important stuff is really in his teenage years because that became the path or the track on which his conversion and his entire academic career depended. Hmm. Um, and so uh, the folks at Crossway um, uh, got interested in the project and, and published the first volume. Um, once the first volume was out, I, I lamented the fact that um, it really just went through uh, World War One, <laughs> at which point Lewis was still an atheist. And I thought, well, I'd, I'd really like to <laughs> at least get him uh, saved. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I proposed a second volume to um, to Crossway that would go from the end of World War One to the end of World War Two. And they agreed to do it if I would agree to do the third volume that wow. would finish out Lewis's life. And so that's how it, it came to pass, all accidental. So you've got your homework sketched out for you, my brother. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I did for several years. It was a, a consuming project and um, it was a lot of fun. It was made easier by Walter Hooper. And I hope your your viewers know Walter Hooper. He well, was the. Why don't we just uh, mention that Walter Hooper came into Lewis's life near the end of his uh, sixty, almost sixty five year journey. Uh, and if you just tell a little bit about that, uh, in case uh, you're here uh, on our podcast, listening to this on our platform of our radio program, The Universe Next Door, we're discussing the amazing breakthrough of this book, The Making of C.S. Lewis, with its author, Dr. Hal Poe. Uh, professor at Union University. Is it uh, Jackson, Tennessee? Jackson, Tennessee. Wonderful. Well, uh, and we have some common um, acquaintances as uh, one of your uh, friends, Cecil and his wife were in my um, life class, my Bible class at Calvary Church here in Tampa Bay. So uh, and Cecil's with the Lord now, but I just want to say it's a real joy to have you uh, join us for this dive into this story of C.S. Lewis. Now let's move into this uh, kind of the second volume material. What did you find um, other than the Iceland adventure, which we will get to that in just a, just a few moments. What did you find kind of exhilarating, exciting, shocking, wonderful, you know, just a revelation as you began to work with the material of the second volume where he becomes a Christian, C.S. Lewis? Um. Several discoveries. Um, the um, so many of the, the the biographies are built off of Lewis's uh, spiritual autobiography. Actually, his testimony, surprised by joy. And um, you know, you assume when someone gives their story, it's accurate. But in fact, um, just as Lewis was bad with numbers, he was bad with dates. Mm. Uh, and um, his brother and his father and, and his friends um, all commented uh, a number of times uh, over many years that Lewis was just absolutely hopeless 
with dates and and planning and confusing uh, dates. He just he just couldn't do it. Um, and he he explained to Arthur Greaves when they were teenagers that he didn't think chronologically so much as thematically um, that things happened uh, in in relationship, but not necessarily chronologically. And that that uh, insight was extremely helpful in sorting out the sequence of when things happened with Lewis. Um, it's fairly easy to follow the primary sources. Lewis wrote letters constantly, and he's often thought of as a, a secretive, private person who never shared anything. Actually, he he wrote <laughs> almost everything that was going on in his head uh, in in different letters, but he just he didn't necessarily tell everybody his his business. Um, so the primary sources, the letters uh, edited by Walter Hooper were extremely important, and his diaries uh, in the uh, mid-20s, 1922 to 1927, a critical point in his conversion, and um, he puts on paper what he's thinking about, what he's feeling, what he's confused about. Um, so that made the writing um, mu much easier. Wow. Um, now, did you um, come to agree? I don't know if in, in this uh, volume two, I haven't been able to get there yet. Did you come to agree with another biographer from about 10 years ago said that the actual date of becoming a theist wasn't 29, it was 30? Yes, know. yes, yes. That's, that's, uh, that's quite true. And it's, um, it's pretty straightforward in the, in the primary sources. Mm. But looking back um, some 25 years later, uh, Lewis just remembered the wrong year. Okay. Um, and he did that about several things. Um, in Surprised by Joy, he talks about that, um, that crisp fall day when he first came across George McDonald's mm -hmm. fantasies. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, it happened in March. <laughs> because we know that because as soon as it happened, he wrote to his friend Arthur Greaves and said, I found the greatest book and you need to read it, too. Uh, well, it but was it, a, it was a crisp spring day then. It was a miserable March day. Oh, okay. <laughs> a dismal March day. Um, and that happened a number of times. It, it just um, what would happen, he would associate in his mind and, and all of us do this with our memories. Mm -hmm. We begin to modify our memories uh, as we associate one thing with another. He did the same thing with um, uh, talking about his um, conversion to Christianity, that it happened the same month he learned to dive. Well, um, so the, that he, we know that he learned to dive in, I think, was it June or July? Um, but in, uh, he was already telling his closest friends in late January and early February that um, he was now a Christian. Mm. And so uh, he, he, he um, it, it's the work of the imagination and all of us, all of us do that. We modify our memories. Well, let's, let's jump into the, uh, we will get to in just a moment, uh, we'll get to the Iceland adventure, which you, your research on, on that is the, one of the great excitements and shocks of Lewis, uh, you know, work and um, research of the recent years. 
let's just look at his apologetics. I mean, our program, The Universe Next Door, is geared toward um, featuring Lewis as this uh, very effective um, presenter of what he himself worked through, the case for God. What would you consider to be a couple of the breakthroughs or at least unique tweakings of pre-existing arguments or fresh arguments? Uh, and give me a minute, in two or three minutes, what are some of the excitement points in Lewis's provision to us in the area of apologetics? Well, we've, we've got um, several wonderful sources for that. Um, his, uh, his diary sort of details when breakthrough moments occurred with him. Hmm. And um, he explains those in uh, Surprised by Joy. Um, but also another unlikely place that we don't usually think of as his personal testimony, and that's mere Christianity, mm-hmm. the radio broadcasts. In, in fact, at the end of the war, the BBC wanted him to do, um, wanted him to share his testimony on radio. And he explained, well, that would be repetitive. I've already done that. Uh, so mere Christianity is actually a third person account of his own conversion. And it began with this problem of right and wrong. When he was, a, when he was an atheist teenager living with W.T. Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick, um, a virulent um, materialist um, with the view that only the physical world exists. And uh, the problem with that view is that there's no room for values in it. In a brute universe of just um, atoms and subparticles, there is no such thing as right and wrong. There's just what is. There's nothing that's beautiful or ugly. There's just what is. And uh, values would have to um, have bubbled up from irrationality, in which case they have no objective meaning, Mm -hmm. or they come to us from the outside. Mm. Now, um, the the critical, um, I think, convincing matter for Lewis um, came through his evening reading. When he was a teenager living with Kirkpatrick, during the day, his head was filled with all sorts of materialist philosophy. But in the evenings, he was reading for fun all the great literature of the Western corpus. So uh, 2,000 years of, of literature, he was reading for fun. He read the Bronte sisters. He read Jane Austen, loved Jane Austen. He read Pilgrim's Progress several times. Hmm. So um, though he was not a Christian, he appreciated the great literature. And um, the, he, found, he fell in love with a certain kind of story. He, he loved Norse mythology. And Norse mythology led him to William Morris, uh, late 19th century writer, polymath. He designed um, wallpaper and, and ceramic tiles and furniture and, and just wrote copiously. Um, he had done a, a, a retelling of the uh, Norse mythologies. So Lewis was on to him and he read uh, w- one of Morris's books, The Well at the World's End. 
And it's a story about a hero who goes in search of that great thing for which he's willing to sacrifice everything in order to obtain it. And once having reached his goal, he returns a changed person. He's not the same person um, he was when he left on his quest. Lewis loved this journey, this journey tale, and he kept running into it. It's the story of Sir Galahad in quest of the Holy Grail. It's the story of uh, Spencer's um, The Fairy Queen. And it's the story of George MacDonald's Fantasties. Mm. And he fell in love with this story and the values within it. And so in the evening, emotionally, he found himself bound to these values, but in the day, in the light of the sun and truth. He was committed to materialist philosophy. And so he was living in a state of cognitive dissonance. You know, he was just torn. Yeah, that's what we can actually explore that that crucial point of cognitive uh, separation or tension. Um, We've got just about uh, two and a half minutes left before we got to, you know, move on and uh, prepare for, you know, um, planning for next week's program as, as we're going to do part two with you. Thank you so much uh, for uh, going along with that plan. Tell us what happened. Uh, you saw a, a record on eBay, and I just want to at least uh, whet people's appetite to rejoin us next week for the whole story. But what happened? This is like six or eight years ago. And and, and what uh, happened? Yes. Uh, well, I saw on eBay um, an old 78 uh, record. Um, uh, Lewis's uh, record of C.S. Lewis talking about um, the Norse influence on English literature. And I said, he never re- recorded a record about Norse influence. That's crazy. It's bogus. Well, it was only a couple of dollars. And I thought, what in the world is this? And, um, and it was I in collect- Reykjavik. It was in the capital of Iceland. Yes, it was in Reykjavik, Iceland. Um <laughs> And so I thought, well, you know, a couple of dollars, it, it'll be fun just to have it to show here's something bogus about Lewis. <laughs> and it came in and sure enough, it's C.S. Lewis hmm. talking about the Norse influence on English literature. Hmm. And I tracked it down. It was recorded by the, um, uh, the Joint Committee on Broadcasting, which was an arm of uh, the Secret Service what um, in pop, the popular mind is MI6. Oh, I love it. I love it. This, this story is fabulous. So, so we, we got another minute. Just give us a little bit more. Well, and so I wrote to um, uh, the director of MI6 and, and James Bond, it's uh, M. Um, and um, the answer I got back was these files are still classified after World War II, which in an odd way is a confirmation. You know, it's not that there are no files. It's that these files are still classified. Um, so it was it was fascinating. And, and didn't it really make a connection with one of the earlier letters, like a 1940-ish letter? Before, way before well, yes, he had, he had in May, yeah. May of 19, um, was it 41? May of 1941. Okay. Uh, he wrote to his friend Arthur Greaves and said that he had just heard his voice recording and it was most disturbing to him to think that that's what he actually sounded like. Yeah. Um, 
And, and the funny thing is that's way before even they had contact or, or, or way, way before he had recorded his. Broadcast. Yeah, the broadcast talks uh, that became Mere Christianity were recorded in August. August. Well, they weren't recorded. They were broadcast in August. Broadcast. Okay. And so this letter had confused people. And um, it was assumed that this was some sort of a sound test uh, that he was talking about hearing his voice recorded. The time we've had together has been fabulous. Uh, you've whetted our uh, appetite big time to join us for next week's program, where you're going to go deep diving into volume two, part of the, uh, the heart of this trilogy that you're right now completing uh, with the upcoming volume three, The Making of C.S. Lewis. And we're going to get the rest of the story here on the universe next door about what happened when you got that record, you actually were able to record it. And I noticed I went to the pages and it's right there, except for a couple of garbled spots. It's right there here in volume two. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Harry Poe. You've been awesome. And thank you so much for joining us next week on Universe Next Door. We'll see you back here.